All right. Well, good morning once again. And today is, you know, today is a bit of a bittersweet day for us, a day of transition uh, as, as we, uh, you know, as we get to recognize uh, our friends and ministry partners, the Gilberts, as, uh, as they're in their final descent on uh, transitioning to their their new ministry in North Carolina, and we'll we'll get to talk about that later. Um, but uh, you know, we're also grateful that today the you know the the days are on a vacation, a well earned rest, and you know, in some ways, the fact that that Johnny and uh, and Carrie are not here today is a testament to the ministry of Al and KK. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but today, we continue our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount in the, in the Lord's Prayer, and specifically Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we live like the kingdom has come. For context, I'd like to bring our attention to a passage in Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's triumphantly entered Jerusalem with children shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. He enters the temple courts overturns the tables of the money changers who are cheating the pilgrims as they exchange Greek and Roman money for temple currency. And in doing so, he offends the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And it was hard to tell whether they were more offended at what happened to the money changers or more offended at what the children were shouting as Jesus entered the city. Well, thanks, Siri. Hopefully she got that right. Uh, Jesus, Jesus then leaves the city, spends the night in Bethany, and returns to the temple the next day. And he teaches three parables that further enrage the Pharisees and the chief priests. At this point, they're looking for a way to discredit Jesus. And we get to verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed and so they left him and went away. Now at this point, you may be thinking, 
hey, didn't Pastor Johnny preach a sermon about giving two weeks ago? And what does giving have to do with your kingdom come? Except we're not going to talk about giving today. In fact, the standard interpretation of Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, only scratches the surface of what Jesus is teaching here. And once you understand the text in its original historical context, the deeper reality of this exchange is it's a story about the kingdom. So let's take a look at verse 19 where Jesus says, show me a denarius. Remember, Jesus is in the temple during this exchange. As soon as as someone brought Jesus a denarius, it exposed the person as a hypocrite. Why? Well, the denarius had the image of Caesar, who insisted that he be worshipped as a deity. And denarii were were considered by the Jews to be graven images, that is, images of a false god. In fact, the Essenes, a major sect of first century Judaism, refused to touch or even look at this particular coin. Graven images were expressly forbidden from the temple, and therefore the person who handed over the denarius to Jesus was exposed as a hypocrite. Maybe the Pharisees were starting to think it was a bad idea to ask Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. However, the true brilliance of Jesus' answer is best understood in the light of other rabbinic teaching at that time that compared God to a king stamping out coins. And and that teaching is documented in the Mishnah, a collection of rabbinic teachings that began to be compiled in written form after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Lois Zverberg describes this wonderfully in her book, Walking in the Dust of the Rabbi. And she writes, what is God stamped with his image? Human beings. And therefore, we should offer our lives back to God. Humans are the handiwork of God. We owe our very existence to him. And the fact that we bear his image shows his ownership over us. Caesar was not God, so let him have his measly coins back. But humans owe our very lives to God. He's stamped us, his seal on us, to show that it is he alone we must serve. And so Jesus' brilliance is evidenced not only by his evasion of the trick question designed to trap him, but a zinger of a sermon that he wove into his response. And we can surmise that Jesus was making this point because early rabbis compared God to a king stamping out coins. It is said, quote, for a king mints many coins with a single seal and they are all alike, but the king of kings minted all human beings with that seal of his with which he made the first person, yet not any one of them is like anyone else. And it shows the infinite glory of God that we are all stamped with his image and yet are unique. A king engraved his image on his coins to show that he owned them and that they were under his authority and part of his reign. Wherever his coins circulated, the king was claiming that territory as part of his kingdom. And so by making this parallel, Jesus was pointing out that because God stamped his image on us, God's reign was far beyond anything Caesar could imagine. 
It's all over humanity. And that brings us back to verse 22. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The Pharisees definitely set a rhetorical trap. But unfortunately, they set the trap for themselves. They were thinking about money and and people's opinions. How do we move the people to reject Jesus? And in response, Jesus illustrated the immenseness of God's reign over all of humanity, even Caesar himself. And so with this as a backdrop, how shall we understand your kingdom come, your will be done? First, know that the kingdom has a beginning. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The fact that we are created in God's image demonstrates his dominion over us. And yet, he also delegates some of that authority to human beings to oversee the earth. The beginning of the kingdom starts at the beginning in Genesis. When when God creates us in his likeness and, and we are stamped in his image. Second, there was an ongoing struggle for the kingdom in the Old Testament. It starts with Eden, the place where heaven and earth meet. After Adam and Eve rebel against God by, taking, by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they are put outside God's presence. And after the fall, the devil begins to rule the earth. Eventually, God selects Abraham to begin the process of restoring earth to human beings. And he gives the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel. Canaan and Eden symbolize God's presence and life. Exile from either symbolizes death and separation from God. And interestingly, that scholars have identified that throughout the Old Testament, when Israel is in Canaan, God is called the God of heaven and earth. And when Israel is exiled from the land, He's just called the God of heaven. Um, And a friend of mine, Frank Viola, describes it this way in his book, Insurgents. When God has his people in the land, under his kingship and in his presence, he lays claim to the whole world. Canaan, the land of Israel, becomes the new beachhead from which God will restore the entire world Under his dominion. Throughout the Old Testament, battles rage across the land, a physical parallel to the spiritual battle for the dominion over earth. Third, the kingdom became present on earth in a new way with the arrival of Jesus. 
Because Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And we, we look at Matthew 3, chapter 2, where John the Baptist prepares the way by calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and with, when Jesus arrives and begins his ministry, the heavenly kingdom is now present on earth in Jesus. Later in Matthew 6.33, Jesus instructs the people to seek first the kingdom of God. Essentially, he's challenging them to per- pursue the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer that, that we've been d- uh, talking about for the past few weeks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are the phrases kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeable? There are two perspectives on the same thing. You know, as we said earlier, the kingdom of heaven refers to the origin of the nation, the heavenly realm. And the kingdom of God refers to the person who rules the kingdom, God himself. And so the kingdom of God is essentially the rule of heaven come to earth. The next part of the trajectory of the kingdom is that while Jesus has conquered sin and death, the enemy continues to fight a battle he's already lost. And although the the kingdom of heaven broke into the world with, with Jesus' arrival, our battle with the enemy is not complete. And as Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Practically speaking, this means that we live in a constant spiritual struggle to live in the kingdom. And that struggle is going to continue until Jesus returns to the earth. And, uh, and, and this is what's very difficult for us as, as human beings to wrestle with because we, you know, we, we experience things in a physical world and yet we are spiritual beings and, and we f- don't fully comprehend the significance of our spirituality and therefore, it is difficult for us to be, you know, constantly living in the kingdom. The, the final piece of the trajectory of the kingdom is, you know, is what Anne uh, referred to in her opening prayer. You know, we look forward to the day when Jesus returns to earth and God dwells in us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And, you know, every one of us, when we, when we come, come to church, when we participate in this community, brings with us a set of experiences and, and trials that we've borne and burdens that we have. And, and, and yet, we have a hope that we will be able to experience a time when, when every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And, you know, that, that aspect of someone wiping a tear from your eyes is they have to be close enough to you to see that they're crying, you know, that you're crying. You have to be in relationship. And, and this aspect of God is the fact that he cares about us and wants to relate to us makes his kingdom different than any other kingdom. And, uh, and, and so that brings us to the, the question of like, what do we do about this practically? Like, how do we live like the kingdom has come? Now, in, interestingly, um, you know, 40 years ago, I graduated from, from high school. And my high school had a motto. And the motto is actually engraved on my high school ring, which I was a, a, actually able to locate last night. And, and, that, and that inscription or that motto is ora et labora. It's Latin for pray and work. And, um, and that it's a really good motto to think about how to live in the kingdom. First we pray, then we work or act. And, and as we think about that, the first thing that we have to do to live in the kingdom is focus on relationship. Uh, and in, in the Gospel of John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, you know, we, we have shared that verse here at Shaliford many times, and because I believe that it's a key verse that is really important to understand how we are to interact with God, is, is that the, the way that we know the truth, the word, is through the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the word is relational. So, you know, when Jesus said, if you obey my commands, you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, the, the rabbinical style of teaching, a rabbi had disciples, and those disciples learned 
how to be like the rabbi by essentially following him around and li- living with him and going from place to place, understanding his teaching, doing what the, the rabbi did. And in fact, there's an, an old Jewish blessing that says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, that you're close enough to the, the rabbi whose disciple you are that you're, you're basically filled with his dust. And you know, Israel was a pretty dusty place. So there's a lot of dust. And, and, and that style of teaching is highly relational. And, you know, and we've lost some of that, in, certainly in the West, where we are so focused on books and, and you know, learning through reading that in, you know, we've lost a lot of the relational aspect of how we learn. And, um, and that relational aspect is vitally important as we're observing with the fallout of um, students being isolated with co- around COVID and not being able to interact with their teachers face to face. So you know, living in the kingdom starts with really working on our relationship with God. Because when we, when we do that, we, are, we begin to see God's beauty. And, and, and we can become captivated by who he is and his character and, and really experience his love for us in unique ways. And, and if we just approach you know, the scriptures from an academic or intellectual pursuit, we won't feel that connection. So the next thing that we need to do is to, to live like the kingdom has come is to renew your mind. And uh, Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And that the Greek used for renewing is an ongoing renewal. It's not like you do it once and, you know, check it off a list and you're done. And, uh, and, and that we are called to be constantly renewing our minds. Uh, and Paul gives us some more concrete ways to do that, uh, in, you know, in, in some of his other uh, letters. For example, in his letter to the Philippians, he writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And when we can focus our minds on what is good, we gain access to the character of God. And it changes the way that we experience the difficulties of life. 
And, and so actively cultivating thinking about what is good is a very concrete way that we can engage in that process of renewing our minds. And, and then Paul also writes to the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Second major way of renewing our minds is being grateful. And regardless of whatever hardships that we have, and you know, you may have experienced a variety of them, of uh, you know, challenges in your family life, um, disappointments in your career, um, being cheated in business. Um, there are many ways that we that we experience the, the you know, difficulties in life. And yet, through them all, God gives us a supernatural ability to see things that we can be grateful for you know, when we have a relationship with him. And as we cultivate that of being thankful, finding the things that we can be grateful for, we also begin to take on more of the character of God. And, and, and that continues that process of renewing our mind. Now, the challenge here is it takes effort, is that we actually have to invest to focus on relationship and renew our minds. We actually have to invest time in that. And, and time you know, un, you know, is essentially our most precious commodity. That no matter what your background is, no matter um, you know, what difficulties that you have in life, you know, uh, you have as many hours in the day to, uh, as, you know, pick your famous or wealthy celebrity. And the degree to which you use that time, the better steward you are of that time, you can be as wealthier than the wealthiest person in things that really matter. And, um, <clears throat> and, and so investing time in focusing on our, on our relationship and renewing our mind um, <clears throat> are two important ways to live in the kingdom. The next one is to remain teachable. And, and this is really hard. Because, um, you know, by age 25, we learn a lot of things. We experience some level of success. We're typically, you know, gainfully employed, are independent, and are pretty comfortable with where we're at. And, and that retaining that stance of a learner is a challenge. Yet... It's important to do that because following Jesus, um, you know, that, that there's a promise with that. 
that as we remain teachable, um, you know, as uh, you know, Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6, the student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. And, um, you know, and, and I, I mean, I've been f- following Jesus for close to 30 years now, and, you know, I'm nowhere near fully trained yet. It's an ongoing process. And, you know, and we all have our ups and downs. And when we're looking forward, sometimes we don't really see the progress. We don't necessarily see God's hand guiding us. It's only when we turn around and look back that we can see God's hand in our lives and the things he's protected us from, the things that he's blessed us with, the the changes that he's made in our character and some of those you know some of those changes occur early on when we when we develop a relationship with Christ and some of them take years and um and but it's as we continuously pursue the relationship from a stance of a learner of remaining teachable um, you know, we have the hope that we can be like our teacher, you know, hanging on to this passage in Luke. And then the, the last uh, way to live in the kingdom is to exercise your authority. And so, so there's, a, you know, w- an important part of the kingdom is Jesus has authority, and, uh, and you know, and, and the and Daniel writes about this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, and was led into his presence. He was given every authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus delegates authority to us to make the kingdom present. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 to heal the sick and tell people that the kingdom of God is near. And the 72 return with joy and, and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And, and he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And Jesus also sent the Holy Spirit to indwell in us, giving supernatural abilities to build his church. And and so prayer then, as we cultivate our relationship with God, empowers us to act. And, um, and, And so when we pray, we receive supernatural insight that gives us the power to act with confidence, knowing that we are loved so we can love others. 
And those first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer align our hearts with the will of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We experience God's love and we respond. And when we act as a response to God's love for us, it can be disarming. It can be subversive and even revolutionary because God's love is what distinguishes his kingdom from all earthly kingdoms. Lord, we rejoice that your kingdom is unlike any earthly, earthly kingdom. We rejoice that you love us, not because of what we do, but because of who we are and how you created us. And I pray that, that everyone here today would sense your love in a very powerful way and that love would lead them to respond.